Hi, everyone. My name is Greg, and welcome back to the podcast, My First Season. In this podcast, I interview travel writers and people who worked in resorts, hotels, cruise ships, and airlines, and we'll talk about their experience in travel and tourism. My guest today did not work for Club Med, but he did spend a year working for Carnival Cruise Lines and was the only American in Carnival Cruise Lines' 30-year history to work a full contract in the ship's restaurants without quitting or transferring. And we'll get into why that was such a huge deal and his first season in the travel and tourism industry and everything he experienced on the high seas. He is the author of the best-selling books, Cruise Confidential, Ship for Brains, Unsinkable Mr. Brown, High Seas Drifter, Cruise a la Carte, and many, many more. He has adventured in over 60 countries to gather material for his best-selling books and won dozens of literary awards, including the USA Reba Grand Prize. He has been featured on ABC's 2020 and was even anointed Sir Brian by Prince Michael Regent, sorry, Prince Michael Regent of the Principality of Sealand. I'm going to ask him about that. Don't worry. Everyone, please help me welcome author Brian David Bruins. Brian, how are you, sir? I am well indeed. Thanks for having me, Greg. Oh, no. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on. When I first read your book, Cruise Confidential, uh, I guess it was about 10 years ago, and then I reread it again for to interview for this podcast. I, wow. The first time I... I, I saw what you were doing. You did it for love. Uh, the second time I read it, I uh, I just, I, I uh, empathize with you so much of what you went through because uh, there's so similar, so many similarities between uh, working for Club Med or working on a cruise ship. Basically your Carnival Cruise Lines, I've always heard unofficially was called like the Club Med of the high seas. I don't know if you ever heard that, but uh, man, like we thought listeners, we, th we thought we worked hard in Club Med, but we didn't work hard at all because man, when, when I was reading your book the second time, uh, I was just living it. Like, I don't know how you, how you survived. I mean, uh, how did you? I, you know, I don't know how I survived and I was old when I did it. I was 30. Most of the people I was working with were closer to 20. Uh, but you know, it, it was for love. That was the only reason I was there. And uh, sometimes you'll move heaven and earth, right? Well, yeah, let's talk about that. So yeah, I mean, I, I know her as Bianca. So if you can just tell us how you started working for Carnival. Yeah, well, I met Bianca because uh, prior to working on cruise ships, I used to have a software development company. And one of my employees was a Romanian. And uh, Bianca was a friend of hers. So Bianca came to visit her. And so it was one of those chance meetups, but it was magic right away. And my business had its troubles and I just happened to be going uh, through a divorce at the time. And then the company split apart kind of simultaneously with meeting Bianca. So I uh, basically fell head over heels and I said, I'm free and clear in a way that I hadn't really felt since leaving college. So I'm like, I'll, I'll do it. And she worked on Carnival. So I'm like, get me on Carnival. And I'm like, what? It's, it's a waiter job. I, I was in the restaurants for 10 years to pay for college and whatnot. How bad can it be? That was my thought at the time. Uh, I found out. Well, yeah. I, did she warn you at all? Like, okay, I, I, you know, I appreciate, admire you. I'm flattered by you wanting to join me. But did she try and dissuade you or warn you uh, what you were getting into? A little bit. Uh, you know, I think it fell on deaf ears when she talked about how hard it was. But there was also a little bit of uh, pride involved because one of the things I've observed working on ships is how the first thing everybody from around the world says is that Americans can't handle it. And I'm like, look, I have a good work ethic. I grew up in the Midwest. I've been working multiple jobs since I was 12. You know, I'm like, I'm tough. 
And so whenever she would say, you know, Americans can't handle it, I, I did want to prove her and them wrong. Well, yeah, I, I would say I would say you certainly started doing that because so in your 13 months aboard uh, in the restaurants aboard Carnival cruise ships, basically, well, I guess you started with a 12 hour day. Plus you had homework. This was seven days a week. And then that goes up to like three shifts a day, seven days a week, 80 plus hours a week. Am I getting this right? Yeah, that's standard for waiters. And uh you know, they break it up. So it's not 15 straight hours. You're basically always on the clock. So if you've already worked 12 hours and suddenly they need you for a midnight buffet, say, uh, then you do it. And maybe they'll give you breakfast off to compensate. But it, it definitely added up to 15 hours a day. Uh, for a while, in my case, it got more, but that's different. That's politics. That's not the norm. But Look, the cruise lines try to tell you that's a thing of the past. They try to tell you, hey, the punch in, punch out. We have proof they don't work 80 hours a week. That's nonsense. There's a lot of hours spent off the clock prepping your station. I guess if you really and truly don't care about your work performance, you can skip things like that and just wing it. Uh, certainly a lot of waiters did. But if you have at all any pride in your work, you want to make sure that your station is prepped for your guests. I mean... You're taking care of them for the cruise, right? So if you don't have a water glass, well, you know, they're going to ask for it. Well, yeah. And here's where this, here's where I was feeling stressed the second time I'm reading it. You have other waiters that steal the items that you need and you would get in trouble if you didn't have these items. Is this correct? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually genius on, it is? on the part of, <laughs> yeah, uh, on the part of Carnival, they're very smart. They know that their employees are, you know, they're overworked and arguably underpaid. So a waiter from wherever, Indonesia, isn't really going to care if he or she breaks a glass, for example. Well, you know, you got 30,000 employees. If everybody breaks a glass every day, that adds up really fast. And uh, of course, they just aren't going to care because they're like, it's a billion dollar company. So they, they put it right back onto the shoulders of the waiters and, and made all the, uh, the equipment precious. And they required you to, I mean, we even at the end of every shift, they would go around and they would check off a list. Do you have enough glasses? But they literally did not have enough glasses on board for every station to have a full complement. They did that on purpose so that every glass was so darn precious. So waiters were required to cannibalize the station that already passed, you know, so that they could get their station set up just enough so they can get that checklist taken care of so then they can go to the crew bar or whatever, get their four hours of sleep and do it all over again the next day. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, early, early on in the book, like the, you know, similarity started uh, coming to me with Club Med and, and Carnival was uh, you had a, a person by the name of Buta tell you that we don't talk about religion or politics. And uh, for those, for our listeners of Club Med, we, we know that very well, but we, there was a third one that would get you even to more trouble was the weather because uh, God forbid if someone asked you when it was going to stop raining and you didn't know the exact time. So, um, and plus the most, like, I don't know how many nationalities you, you had on the ship. It sounds like even more than what we would have in a standard resort at Club Med. Did you, when someone said, don't talk about religion or politics for the first time, were you shocked by that? Well, was I wasn't shocked by it. Um, there are about 60 nationalities represented on uh, Carnival Cruise Lines or at least Carnival Corporation. Six zero? Six zero. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot. Wow. 
but it's, I wasn't surprised that we're not supposed to talk about, you know, religion and politics. We, we all know you're not supposed to talk about these things, especially when you have people that are every race, color, and creed. However, in my case, there was no avoiding it. Fortunately for me, I love talking about these things. I fancy myself a good conversationalist. And because I was the lone American below decks, for the most part, a lot of my waiter friends were like, well, we can't ask questions about America to the guests who are predominantly American. Well, we can ask you because you're down here too in the bowels of the ship. And uh, so tell us about this, that, and the other thing. And I'm so glad that those conversations came up because that's really, at the end of the day, my most cherished memories by far are the people that I worked with and the conversations like that that we had below the waterline. And we're all there for the same reason. So the agenda was not, my religion's better than yours, or your color abuses that color. Every nation has th those issues. Uh, no, it's people wanted to learn. And so I love it when people want to learn because I want to learn and we can learn from each other. And that's what happened below decks. If you weren't drunk, you were talking about good stuff like that. True enough. I want to get back to Bianca for a sec because uh, I just I, I just want my listeners to know. So you so you followed her on board. So how many? So the people on board couldn't figure out if you were. How did you put it? If you were crazy or in love or stupid? Wait. How did yeah. They, how, yeah. How, how, how did they put it? Crazy or stupid? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. so but you know here's the thing though. Can you tell tell us approximately how many months though that while you were training and slaving away like you weren't living with her you were not in the same room with her so how long did it take how many months did it take you just to be able to finally be with her yeah that was the trick right so the first thing is a month of training which is uh, we call it carnival college but you're just on at the time it was the fantasy and you spend a month learning the ropes of being a waiter so i was on my own for that and that's fine because that was probably 15 hours a day and then after that i did get transferred to the same ship as her which was very unusual because she was on the newest ship in the fleet at the time, which was Carnival Conquest. And uh, a newbie waiter would never be able to get on the brand new shiny ship, but I did. But my situation was of course very different. Being American, there are no channels for Americans to work on Carnival Cruise Lines. And she had to bribe a lot of people on her end. And we both had to push really, really hard. And when I did get hired, it wasn't to be a waiter. It was to be an assistant maitre d', which is low-level restaurant management. So they knew my situation was a little different. So they knew I was there specifically to be with her. We had prearranged after training, I would go to the conquest. So I did. And we did live together for about three months on conquest. But then she went on vacation because our contracts did not line up. So then my last four months on Conquest, I was alone. So what, what was her position? I mean, that she was able to get, I mean, call in these favors. Was she pretty high up in the chain? That's a good question. She wasn't high up, but uh, she's Romanian and they really know how to work it. So she was part of a, a group of waiters that always opened the new ships. She was very good at her job and she was beloved by the senior maitre d' for the entire fleet. So he liked her. She was part of this group that followed him because he always opened the new ships. And it's really difficult to open a new ship. As you might imagine, uh, you got this brand new shiny vessel. Everything came in to cargo holds. And you've got to find the thousands of forks 
the thousands of napkins, the thousands of menus. You have to find them all and put them in the right place and get everything working correctly. So you need to be able to rely upon your waiters. And then they would always do a shakedown cruise where usually they would cross the Atlantic. Uh, most of the new ships were from Monfalcone, which is in Italy, and they would head over to, say, Florida. And during that week, transatlantic, usually the big wigs from Carnival would go on board, kind of a vacation, kind of a shakedown. And so she would always serve the really, really high level people of Carnival and got to know them by name. And fortunately for her, one of them kind of liked her and she knew it. So she worked that guy and uh, was like, I have a boyfriend, he needs to get on board. And so she had a little bit more access to him because uh well, he would listen to her whenever she came around because he liked her. And even when and even when you were like the way you describe it in the book, I mean, to me, it could be because I'm an 80s, 80s nerd. Uh, it sounded like that uh, the 1985 movie Lady Hawk, because even though you, you were together, it was like, you know, uh, she she was a, a hawk in the day and you were a wolf at night. You could never be, you know, it seemed like or you'd have an hour, right? <laughs> yeah, that was an absolutely brilliant metaphor. And I'm exactly okay. the same age. I love that. That's okay. exactly what it was like. We, we had less than an hour together every day and we stayed in the same cabin. Uh, but, you know, when you're on four hours of sleep a day, and usually you get like an hour, hour and a half, half nap in there. You just wake up, you brush your teeth and you go, right? It, it definitely caused problems. And when she would get off work, there was sometimes a little bit of time before, uh, after her dinner shift and before my midnight buffet shift. But invariably, she would go to the crew bar to relax with her Romanian friends. And that became kind of a problem because, look, she's... English is her third language. So she wanted to just chill with her friends in her native language. And how could I take that away from her? It was such an incredibly stressful job. Uh, she's overworked, underpaid, under stress. And her friends just wanted to, you know, have a cigarette and chit chat. And it, I kind of felt like the third wheel in that. So it did add a lot of strain. And, and not only that, um, I guess, because you're, you're a relatively big guy, right? You're, you're what, 6'2 or 6'4? I'm 6'1 and about 200 pounds. Okay. Yeah. And like, I'm mildly claustrophobic, but the way you described the cabins was you, some, sometimes you'd have a room where you wouldn't be able to do a push up on the floor. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Those cabins God. are tiny, man. The first cabin, uh, well, the, the first cabin was actually a little bit bigger. I could do a push-up there, but uh, once the ships got into the, say, 2000, the year 2000 and after, just, they got so small, man. And you're like the bunk, your head, my head would press against the wall. My feet would press against the other one. And I would have to sleep with my luggage because there wasn't enough room to store it. And the floor space was literally less than six feet. And, you know, it had a TV in there. It had a chair in there a little fridge that was under the desk. Uh, on top of the desk was the little TV. Uh -oh. It was, I think that was my cat. She's that, she's that from the nap. Okay. Yeah. So sorry about that. That's, that's okay. I, I think she heard me uh, talking. It's like, oh, is okay. it time? She's wondering why you're in the closet. Okay. Right. But uh, I'm sorry about that. That's okay. But uh, it was really, really tiny. And I remember one ship in particular uh, a cabin that size, my roommate was significantly larger than me. Yes. Uh, he was a guy from Costa Rica and he was huge. This dude, he was 
he was maybe an inch taller than me, six, two or something, but man, that guy must've weighed 240 pounds. It's just big, big dude. And we had the same schedule. So we both had to wake up and get dressed at the same time. Invariably, I would wait in my cap, uh, my bunk or jump into the bathroom while he would put on his shirt or whatever, because we couldn't even put on our vests without banging into each other. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, my, my claustrophobia is coming out now. And, and even then, so you mentioned you had four, four hours sleep, but the way you describe, you know, the rooms below the waterline, you have you have it's like they have, there's nightly competing like who could put their music loudest so the indians would crank up their music the pakistanis so how are you just so dead tired that you didn't have a later on you didn't have a problem sleeping no matter what because you also had a i think you had an african roommate at one point that was also listened to his music but inside your cabin is that true i can't remember his name um well i've i've had pretty much all of those scenarios okay uh, when, so how did when you I first sleep started out yeah you you're so exhausted you could sleep through anything i okay. mean uh, my head would literally be pressed against the wall and it would thump with the bass from oh, the neighbor's music. God. And, uh, you know, it's people are partying in the cabin. If your curtain is closed, they ignore you, but it doesn't mean they can't live their own lives. So if they wanted to watch TV or play video games or have drinks and ch chat with a friend in their little bunk, uh, they did so. But you, you're just so dead tired. You can sleep through a hurricane. So this was a soundproof privacy curtain, I imagine? No. Yeah, okay. uh, if only it was. Okay, all right, wow, okay, yes. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to keep it G-rated on that one. Yes, yeah. yes, understood. Can you explain the term, because I think this is a clever term, but I, I don't know if I fully understand it, the term pancake Darwinism. Because on chap oh, chapter yeah. two of your, your book, I mean, I know it means during breakfast and lunch, only the bullies receive their food or the thieves. But can you just elaborate what pancake Darwinism means? Yeah, at the time, they've tried to clean it up, but it, it's inherently never going to change. Think of a greasy spoon diner where every waiter runs up to a little window and shouts their order. And there's a, a line cook or two behind there just scrambling to throw out the hash browns and, the, and whatnot. It, it's kind of like that, but multiplied hundredfold. So when you go into the, the kitchen, you're literally going to have 20, 30 waiters in line at once shouting orders to, say, three line cooks. And it's particularly acute during breakfast because you can customize your breakfast order in a way that you don't do with lunch. Lunch is burger and fries or burger and a salad. But for breakfast, it's, oh, no, I want two eggs over easy. I want hash browns. I want bacon. I don't want sausage, right? And so everybody is just literally shouting over each other at the poor, harried line cooks. It's chaos in there, and there's really no organized way to make it any better. So whoever shouts louder, whoever has sharper elbows gets in front. And so only the strong survive. Okay, got it. But, but since we're back in the restaurant, I, I need you to explain something to me because I've never been on a cruise and I, I still have a hard time understanding or fathoming this. Okay, the, on page 231, the midnight buffet. You said, <laughs> so not only is there a midnight buffet, I want, I'm going to get back to that. Okay, uh, so finally at two in the morning, everyone had their photos and the hush was broken. The buffet was open for dining. So, so there's actually people after they eat dinner, they go to a midnight buffet, they line up. The lines are so long from people taking photos that two hours later, they start to eat and these same people are in the restaurant for breakfast. Can you, can you, why is there, why is there a midnight buffet? I don't understand. Well, 
it's very true that people go on cruise ships to eat, eat, and eat. Okay, that I've heard, uh, but I, I never yeah. knew there was a midnight buffet. And there is a midnight buffet, but once per cruise, they're going to have a, a special gala event where the chefs really pull out all the stops and they make the food really beautiful. You're going to have food sculptures, ice sculptures, chocolate sculptures, things like that. And it really is a sight to behold. So that's the, that's the one time of the week where usually on formal night where people are going to stay up a little bit later to get the photos because it's really something you don't get to see very often. But believe me, uh, Midnight Buffet is very, very popular, especially if the ship was in port late. A lot of people are not going to eat out in port because it's free food back on the ship. So they get really, really hungry. They drink, party, parasail, whatever it is, shop. And then they'll come back to the ship and uh, just go to town. Okay, so this was a once a week occurrence during a vacationer's stay? Yeah, you, well, it's once per cruise. Okay, once per cruise. usually adds up to about once a week. So, if there are three or four day party cruises, they may skip that. I mean, they're, they're not going to skip Midnight Buffet, but they might skip the big gala event. Okay, was the gala at at midnight as well? Mm-hmm. Okay, so why did yeah. they just why didn't they just do this? Because we we would do the similar thing in Club Med, but we would make it uh, whatever at time dinner was. So why didn't they just do this at nine o'clock or, or at dinner time? Why? why? I, I do not know the reason for that. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, it <laughs> wouldn't surprise me if it's just a matter of needing more time to get it done. And this was always the way you describe it. It was always packed. People were just clamoring. So this was a very popular thing, the Midnight Buffet. It really was. And you have a chance to glimpse the captain because he'll be there and it's invariably he. So so he and his, (laughs) his, you know, the the higher end bridge crew will make an appearance. And so a lot of people want to see them too, even if it's just to gawk like there's some sort of celebrity all right thank you for clearing that up for me uh yeah i want to speak about something else because uh you know in club med you know even though we've we did our you know roughly it, it could have been from a 12 to 16 hour day depending if you had a late arrival we did seven days a week you know for a number of years until they instituted the day off but what we never had to do and i was shocked to read this was that so when you finished your contract you know you would you would go you know you would probably get a vacation going to ship but uh you the employees you were forced to work breakfast or lunch right up until the yeah. minute your bus left the terminal is that please yeah, that's yeah. not true oh my god yeah yeah after 10 months which <sighs> is it's usually it's about 10 months uh you're working seven days a week and the uh the morning that your bus is leaving if it's not leaving until say 11 a.m well you're working until 11 a.m yeah so, it's, oh. it's pretty cruel oh my god okay <laughs> Oh, this is all, this is hurting me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's, it's bad. I mean, I love the cruise industry, but just because I love it doesn't mean there's not plenty of room for improvement. And this is definitely one of them. They, they just squeeze every last drop out of the people and it's pretty brutal when you start learning the details. Well, I felt some of your pain when, when you, I think you were training to be an assistant maitre d' your job was to actually improve things. But then when you came up with numerous ways to make things more efficient, your notes or your files were tossed out, right? Yeah, that was where the international politics came in. Uh, They always made a big show, like so many corporations. Oh, we listen to our employees. We want improvement. They didn't want improvement. And they certainly didn't want it from me. And I don't blame them. I mean, I do recognize that I was a precedent. All of the restaurant managers, Uh, well, all the restaurant entirely, they were all not American. You're in an American-owned company that caters to Americans. 
that sails out of America, but does not hire Americans. So they're very sensitive to that subject. And an American did show up and proved that he'll put up with whatever crap you throw at him. And they didn't want a flood of Americans taking their jobs because even though it's really bad money from an American perspective, uh, it's really good money if you're from a second or a third world nation. So they didn't want to lose those jobs. And when they saw me coming in with these ideas like, hey, people are people and they're individuals and they have rights, hmm, they, they didn't want to hear that so much. And even if it was something as simple as, hey, it's more efficient to do this rather than that, uh, they didn't want to hear that either because they had a system that worked. And it you know, certainly worked for the shareholders. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I kind of got the feeling, you know, at some point reading your book where even though you took it as a challenge to be that first American, they were making it uh, especially hard on you. Like if you can des uh, describe to our listeners what a side job is, in addition yeah. to your numerous yeah. duties, can you tell them what a side job is? Yeah, this is uh, another example of work that's uh, off the clock. So every waiter has a side job. And that just means a little task that you have to do before or after working in the restaurants. Sometimes it's very simple. Like you have to go to each waiter station and grab the bread basket. That'll take you five minutes to go to a hundred stations, grab a basket and put it in the pantry. But other ones, well, those are different. Those are like, you have to mop the escalators. Yes, for you, example. You, you are tasked with that one, right? I was indeed. And this is one of those, because it's off the record, so to speak, uh, it is used to punish bad employees. And so in that regard, that's cool. I'm, I'm totally down with that. There are a lot of waiters, for example, that would come in late habitually. And they're like, well, if you're not going to be a team player, you're going to have to pay for it on the back end with, you know, escalator duty. Uh, so if, and conversely, if you're a really good employee and everybody writes in wonderful comments about you constantly, well, give them light duty because they deserve it. Uh, I'm totally down with that. But... Uh, when they were trying to push me out, when I was, I had moved away from being a waiter and became an assistant maitre d' trainee, eh, titles got tricky, but they were trying to push me out because they didn't want the precedent, like I was saying. And one of the easiest ways to do that was to assign me more work. Ordinarily, this was the carnival legend at the time. One of the side jobs was to uh, sweep and mop one of the escalators from like level two to level three. Well, in my case, I had to do that, but from level one to level two to level three, and not just on the starboard side, but also on the port side. So what should have been one escalator ended up compounding to four and then eventually 16. And of course, I'm not directly getting paid for this. And I had to wait for the kitchen staff to get done with the mopping equipment so I couldn't even start this for like an hour and a half after my shift was done, right? So it was one of those things. I'm only getting five hours of sleep anyway, and it was specifically designed to cut that in half. And I recall that a coworker of yours told you, idiot, you could outsource this job to someone, yeah. I think, for $20. But the second you tried that, they instituted a new rule where you couldn't outsource. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they were always one step ahead. There's okay. no question about it. All right. So you mentioned, um, yeah, you mentioned you were doing this for free. This kind of reminds me of, you know, this whole, well, McDonald's had a term for this. My friend was an assistant manager in the early 90s, and they called it preventive, uh, preventive maintenance. And <laughs> what that meant was you had to go in on your day off to clean the ice cream machine. <laughs> so this, yeah, this to me re reeked of 
that. But um, you mentioned you did it for free. Are you allowed to talk about like salary and tips? How much you were paid? Because uh, we, uh, well, we, I'm we allowed we to say whatever I want. Okay. But- <laughs> well, we yeah, we weren't we weren't paid a lot at Club Men, but no one was there for the money. But so, did you have salary plus tips? No. Well, technically, you have a very, very, very small salary, but it's pennies. Uh, you know, almost everything you made was dependent upon tips. I'm a big proponent of the auto tipping system that they have on cruise ships because that's surely 85 or 90% of a waiter's salary, take-home pay. So a lot of people don't realize just how dependent waiters are on that. And if they think, oh, an extra five a day is enough, it's not. So it it's a very complicated system and you are often taking care of people who are not even remotely related to you uh, and your purview or whatever. Uh, you're tipped by the people that you're assigned in the dining room if you're a waiter. And if they get angry at a bartender when they're on the pool deck and decide I'm going to pull tips, they're not pulling the tips from the bartender at the pool. They're pulling it from you. And they don't know that. And you know the cruise line doesn't want people to really understand how these things are allocated. They just want you to pay it and get it done. So it's very tricky. Things have changed a lot over the last decade as far as restaurants have opened up. It's not quite the same formalized system that it used to be. There's a lot of different dining options. So it's long story short, it's very complicated, but whatever it is they recommend to do, I also recommend to do. It's the best way to take care of your waiters. And uh, believe me, every dollar helps. Uh, Believe me, you know, an extra five bucks goes a long way if you're in Bangladesh. Yeah, because I think you mentioned in your book, uh, Cruise, Con- Cruise Confidential, that the majority of the, the staff like would just work and send the money home. Is that correct? Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, call it what it is. They're sweatshops, sweatships, if you will. And uh, they're not great jobs, but they pay great money wherever he or she happens to be from. And uh, so that's why I'm saying I don't begrudge the cruise lines too harshly. Because a lot of the people I know directly uh, were sending money home so their sister could actually go to school, for example, and get out of the rice paddy, stuff like that. Uh, When you know them on a first name basis, it makes a big difference. So yeah, it's a tough job, but there's a reason people are lining up for it. I'd like to talk about chapter seven a bit, if if you're able, because you call that norovirus. And then that would lead to my second question about what you think of the current state of the cruise industry. So if you can mm. explain to the uh, listeners who have who've never been aboard a cruise ship what norovirus is. Yeah, so the norovirus has flu-like symptoms. And yeah, disease is something that's on everybody's mind now. The norovirus always gets headlines for being a particularly acute problem on cruise ships. And it is, but it's actually far more acute in places such as hospitals and nursing homes. Anywhere you get a large number of bodies, it spreads. And it spreads very easily through, you know, all the usual suspects, germs from touching and and things like that. Um, It's a particularly nasty virus in that it spreads easily and it gives you gastrointestinal distress. But it's, I don't think it's ever lethal. I could be wrong in that. But when it does get on a cruise ship, it's really tenacious and really hard to get rid of. And so waiters dread this because they're going to have to, well, they're going to have to bleach and bleach and bleach. That's that's the short answer. Well, the way you describe it in the book is that, which I didn't know, you, you said that the way a ship is cleaned, it's actually 
more clean than a restaurant on land, correct? And that you have these inspections that are just notorious, right? And there's people crawling under things with white gloves looking for grease. So it's surprising that that even happens, that you can get norovirus, but it's true, right? Like you have inspectors that come to, uh, well, you're given a bit of warning, correct? About You're given a little warning, but not much. Uh, it is absolutely correct that a cruise ship is cleaner than any restaurant on land, any one of them, let alone the greasy spoon that we all love down on the corner. Just literally orders of magnitude cleaner. The problem really, it, it's the people. Nobody is as clean as they think they are. <laughs> Like it's just a fact. People don't wash their hands after the bathroom. They don't wash their hands before eating, that kind of thing. The human race is not, not self-aware in these regards. So you get one guy who's sick and he's going to give it to however many. And so that's what we're dealing with. So when you're a waiter, for example, and norovirus hits, you're going to be bleaching salt and pepper shakers every day. You're going to be bleaching menus if you work in housekeeping, you're going to be bleaching uh, remote controls and doorknobs consistently. And of course, again, because you're working seven days a week, these things are getting that once over multiple times during the day. But there's only so much you can do. And if you had a successful inspection, I believe Carnival threw you guys a, a big party? They did. So the inspection that comes in, the U.S. public health system, they are really tough. And they do the white glove thing. And they're so, they're over the top. <laughs> to be fair, they're over the top. I mean, we would have equipment in the kitchen that uh, was brand new that we haven't even used yet. And they would look at it and demerits. It's not clean enough, you know? So if there was a, maybe a slicer, for example, from meats that somebody couldn't clean to their satisfaction and they knew they were on board already, Sometimes they just wrap it in plastic and say, oh yeah, it's under construction or we need to repair it. We're not using this one. And I don't begrudge anybody for doing that because these inspections are ridiculous. They, they really are. But if you do pass and get really high marks, let's say you get the score goes up to hundred, but the second the ship, you know how like a new car, the second you drive it off the parking lot, it loses whatever $5,000 in value. Cruise ships are like that. The second a ship, is out of the its initial home port for the first maiden voyage, it already gets docked a point. It's just not fair. And so if you manage to get 97, 98, yeah, you'll get a big old party thrown in your behalf because that's that's some serious bragging rights. And the way you describe the parties in the book, because everyone works so damn hard and they party twice as hard, but and it's, you know, for me, it was hard to think like, oh my God, like, it's kind of like, uh, night guy screws day guy because you know you have this killer shift so so you've you've forfeited your four hours of sleep to party i mean did i mean the, I, I know you 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 basically kept your your head about you but you saw you know staff and co-workers just completely blotto right and then have to do uh, whatever 12 hour shift oh, correct yeah yeah oh, there's no question God. but the thing to keep in mind is that well first of all when you're 20 you can do anything forever <laughs> Right. You could bounce back from just about anything. Uh, at my tender age of 48, it takes me a lot more to recover, but uh, that's part of it. But for the most part, you are a walking zombie anyway. If you know you're going to go 10 months without a full night's sleep, you know, maybe once in all of that time, you might be able to squeeze in six hours. Uh, you're already so fatigued that, you know, your nerve endings are just fried anyway. So why not live a little bit? 
uh, it took me a, a while to learn that. Uh, well, okay, a while, a few weeks. Uh, you resist it in the beginning, but after a while, it, it was about two or three weeks in when I was invited to go out into port uh, one night. And a bunch of lady friends were like, Brian, we're all going out into port and we're going to go tour this beautiful resort in the Bahamas. And they weren't going to gamble. It was a gambling resort, but it had all kinds of cool stuff. And they wanted to go see some of the Bahamas. They're like, hey, I'm from Slovenia. I want to see the Bahamas. And I was so tired, but they drugged me out anyway. And I'm so glad they did because it was just magical. And to share that experience with these people was amazing. And that's the stuff I remember. It was almost like taking a kid to Disney World for the first time. You live through them, seeing the wonder in their eyes. Now, I'm sounding almost ethnocentric. That's not what I mean. Uh, it, it was wonderful for us all, but I just, I would not have done that. Had it been just me, I'm like, I need to sleep, but I'm glad they drug me out so I could experience, that's the wonder of working on a cruise ship, stuff like that. So yeah, we were tired going in, we were tired going out. Well, I'm glad you brought that part up because you're talking about the Atlantis Resort and Casino, correct? I am. Yes. Yeah, I worked at the Club Med on Paradise Island, right next to that, and I would often mm-hmm. go in, go in, and just to stare at the aquarium. But, oh, uh, yeah. but this question, I don't want you to say too much because I do want to have you on again to talk about what happened after this book. <laughs> so, uh, with everyone looking at the aquarium, you were immediately drawn to the art, which surprised me, but then it made sense later. So, you're you have a degree in art history, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And you were drawn to, uh, was it a sculpture, I think, by an artist you liked? Yeah, it was glass sculptures from Dale Chihuly, who was the world's leading glass artist. Yeah. Okay. So everyone wanted to gamble, look at the aquarium. uh, You were, you just focused on the art. Okay. Now we're going to get into that near the end. uh, And I would like to have you on again to talk about what happened after. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, But let's talk about, so yeah, so a lot of times when you were it wasn't often you were allowed to go to port. So what are some of the best places? Cause you, you were in this also to travel, like what are some of the best islands or places that you, you visited during your, your time in Carl? Well, that's, that's a great question. A little tough to answer. Uh, I did end up spending four years on cruise ships. Only one of them was as a waiter or in the restaurants. Uh, that was with Carnival, but I did spend a lot of time on Carnival ships as an art auctioneer, which you know, to say yes. the art thing. But um, to be fair, I love all the ports. If there's anything I've learned in my travels, it's that every place has its charms. There's no question about it. If somebody said, hey, Brian, you want to go to Wichita, Kansas tomorrow? I'd say, yes, uh, I'll find something there as long as you keep your eyes open. So that's very important. And it depends entirely upon what you're looking for. I love culture myself. So Whenever I would go to a port, I would just walk and get lost and I would look around and I would find a coffee shop and sit and watch people go by and just try to absorb the place. Now, if your goal is to shop for kitschy stuff, certain ports are going to cater to that more than others. Certainly any of the ports that are owned by the cruise lines, that's a big thing. That's where you're going to get just the, well, dare I say the club med experience uh, that day because it's provided by say Royal Caribbean, they have that island or Carnival has that island. And when you go there, they own everything and they run it all for you and they provide what they think you're going to want. So if you just want to chill out, have a drink, or you want to shop for souvenirs, you know, that's fine. And they're, these islands are incredibly beautiful and relaxing. And if you want to sleep on a hammock under a palm tree, you got it. Right. But uh, I just, I love the culture. So 
I was particularly drawn to all the Mexican ports. I love Mexico. And uh, I would always try to get away from the, the Senor Frogs section. And I would try to get just get into the, the dirty streets. That's my style. Well, yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned Senior Frogs because a lot of times you you didn't uh, have a lot of time. You couldn't go far from the cruise ships. And I guess these businesses knew this, right? So they placed a bar like Senior Frogs by the port, knowing the employees. <laughs> yeah. Now, yes. now, now it's a big deal, correct? If you miss <laughs> getting on ship, <laughs> even for a guest, I'm told. So. Uh, yeah, it, it's a huge deal. I don't actually know what happens to guests, ironically, but I do know what happens to uh, employees of the cruise line. Did you know anyone that happened to? I don't think you mentioned in the book, but do you know anyone personally that an employee that I do, missed? I oh, do. And yeah. um, is that termination? It's immediate termination. Oh, okay. That's, right. That's what yeah. I thought. Um, and it is a risk because depending on where you are in your contract is depending on where you are in your level of debauchery. Uh, as, the, as the contract continues, you do start to drink more and uh, it's innocuous at first. You know, being a waiter, for example, you're going to work two shifts for dinner. You're going to work seven hours or whatever. And it's very stressful. Uh, being a waiter is a very stressful job. You got to go, go, go. They want you know, dessert. I want my coffee. I want my, my spoon is dirty, whatever, right? You got to go, go, go. And so at the end of that, you need to relax really fast because you're going to be back in that dining room, you know, in seven hours tops, probably less. So you have to decompress and shower and sleep and wake and get ready, you know, and eat in there before you go back to work. So you need to decompress really fast and that starts with a drink. But you do that every night for two weeks. Well, now it's two drinks, right? And so you acclimate pretty quick and you start to really hammer the booze. So at the end of a contract, you'll see people cutting loose. And if they have a lunch off, which you'll usually get one cruise off, or I mean, uh, one lunch off a cruise. So every seven days, you know, you're going to get that glorious four hours off. Uh, it's not surprising if you're going to just go to the end of the pier and hit that senior frogs and hammer the booze pretty hard. It, it definitely happens. But we all know to take care of each other, make sure that we don't go overboard or if somebody does, to, pardon the pun, uh, to, to not over drink. Uh, but if somebody does, uh, everybody else you know, bands together and helps them get, get where they're supposed to go on time. Flash forward to chapter 10, because you wrote something that completely amazed me. Um, I don't know how you did this, because you you worked all the time. You didn't have any free time. But you said that you created a second edition of a book you had self-published before joining the ship. So how did you do this on the ship? I don't get it. I don't know. Okay. I, I don't know how I did it. Well, I, I do know how I did it. In the beginning, I resisted the whole bar scene. I was there specifically to be with my girlfriend. She wasn't there. And uh, especially that first month. And of course, there's the learning, the ropes. It's really tough. But even, even when I was on the same ship with her and our schedules were conflicting, I didn't want to go to the bar because the bar was very much a hookup scene. That wasn't what I was there for. So I would have like an hour to unwind before falling asleep. So I, I would lay in my bunk with my laptop. And I would crank away. Revising an old edition isn't that hard anyway. So I managed to crank it out. Uh, and I had good people, friends and family that helped me with my distribution network back on land, which is good because especially in those days, the internet was really tricky on ships. 
So, uh, you know, via one or two emails a week, I would organize all that stuff through my friends and family. Oh, the other cat's up now. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, we're getting to the end. I, I have one more question, and uh, which will lead me. So I don't want to get into like the, the negative of your story. Basically, you were you were you were railroaded. I mean, everyone knew it. Yeah. But but then you had this chance encounter where, where someone said something like, "Well, why don't you be an art auctioneer?" And you were like, "Huh? Okay." So if you could explain to listeners what what an art auctioneer is. Yeah, that was an amazing scenario. So I was unaware that on board, there is a guy or a gal that's an art auctioneer. And the reason I was unaware is because they live in a guest cabin. They have full guest privileges. And once a week or per cruise, they conduct an art auction. And uh, that happens in say a lounge during the day and uh, stuff like that. So they're completely outside of my sphere and I didn't know it existed. And it turns out that it's a very lucrative job. And so I was going through a hard time. Uh, I had been demoted from my promised job of assistant maitre d'. I was a waiter. They were trying to get rid of me. And uh, one of my guests happened to be a cruise director on a different cruise line that was uh, Royal Caribbean. And his brother happened to be the hotel manager of that ship that I was working on. And the hotel manager is the second most powerful person on board, arguably the most important person. So of course the captain is what we all think of as being the, the big dog in charge, but the cruise director is the one who's actually in charge of all hotel and entertainment and food services. The captain just makes sure that the ship doesn't hit a rock, right? Okay. And, and so the hotel director does everything else. The hotel director is the CEO. And so I was uh, serving the CEO of our ship and, uh, and this cruise director from a different ship. And I don't know why they gave these guys to me, probably because, well, I, I'm a funny dude, believe it or not. And uh, I'm quick with a joke anyway. And English is my native language. Whatever, for whatever reason, they gave me these guys. And I have to admit, I was drunk out of my mind when they were in one night. It happened to be the day that I was off for lunch and I had made plans with my assistant waiter. I'm like, I'm going to be drunk. So help me out. I was as responsible as I could be irresponsibly. So uh, we hit it off really well. Uh, they ended up getting drunk too. It was just this big party, this big bash. Everybody was throwing jokes around, having a grand old time. And finally, they're like, why are you here? You know, what are you doing as a waiter? And that's how that came up. And uh, they're like, man, you should be an art auctioneer. Actually, they said, you should be a cruise director. You're funnier than me, the cruise director said. And uh, he's like, talk to my brother here, the hotel director. So I did talk to him because he was an American, which is very rare in his line of work also. So he was of the same age as me. And he's like, man, can you just come hang out with me? And we could talk about Dukes of Hazard or something. Nobody knows what that is. And he's like, you do. So he was lonely. I was lonely. And uh, we started talking. And that's when he suggested, hey, you should, you should become a cruise director. I'll help. But man, it, it's a shame you don't know anything about art. I'm like, wow, this is where I slyly hint that I have a degree in art history. And uh my history was made there. And uh, will you be willing to come on again to discuss the second book? Yeah, there's uh, that was an, an additional three years of trials and tribulations. 
so I'd be more than happy to. I love talking about this. So the, the sequel to Cruise Confidential, would that be Ship for Brains? Like yes. The second one? Okay. All right. So, okay. So Brian has agreed to, because I, um, again, I'm completely mystified and curious about uh, this whole art auctioneer thing. I even had to ask my sister who went on numerous cruises what this was and she knew, oh yeah, I know what that is, you know, <laughs> but I've never heard of the term. So yeah, I uh, would like to have you on again and uh, we'll continue the story with you and Bianca if possible and uh, find out some more. Yeah, it'd be so, my pleasure. Uh, I really want to thank you for sharing your story with us today, Brian. I really appreciate you for coming on. Thanks, and, Greg. Uh, I, I'm really happy to be here. Okay, great. So everyone, that was Mr. Brian David Bruins. I will post the links where to get his uh, books on Amazon for you. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Bye.